My name is Jonathan Penchoff, and you are listening to Repeating History. 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 Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm jumping right into this today. I want you guys to imagine, just close your eyes and picture this scene. You come up to me at my house, and I'm like just chilling here with my dog, Tengu, and we're hanging out, and you go, hey, you know, this king from this other faraway land wants you to submit earth and water. And then I look at you and I say, earth and water and we're standing by a well and I say you can get a bunch of it down there you son of a bitch and I say this is repeating history and then I kick you into the well except instead of the well it's education and instead of kicking you I'm just gonna gently guide you by the hand now if you didn't understand any of that well You need to go watch the movie 300 because that's almost a direct ripoff from that scene. And coincidentally, that's one of the things we're going to cover today. That's right. We're talking about the Greco-Persian Wars, specifically four of the battles. I'm going to spend a little more time on two of the battles because A, I think they're more cool, like better stories, and B, they're pretty important to mostly the Greeks, but also to the Persians, it turns out. If you haven't listened to some of the previous episodes, I would suggest going back and checking those all out. Not as like a shameless thing to be like, hey guys, listen to my voice more, but some of the characters from some of those previous episodes will be making a little guest appearance in some of today's episode. So I think it will be kind of important in the whole continuity kind of aspect. It's not really like a part one and part two kind of deal, but I just think it'll make the transition into this episode a bit smoother. But for those of you who have listened to all the previous episodes, welcome back. I'm very pleased to have you here. My name, as always, is Ponathan Genchoff. I'm just kidding, it's Jonathan Penchoff. See how I switched it up there? Because I said, as always, and I got you thinking, oh, I'm lulled into the sense of security. I know this part. Anyway, this is repeating history. Here we go, guys. How about I give y'all a little bit of background information about why these battles are even going to happen in the first place? It seems like a pretty good place to start, right? Right now, there's a dude named Darius in charge of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, good. That means you've been paying attention, because we have for sure talked about this dude before. He's the first of the great kings who is not of a direct bloodline from Cyrus the Great, who started the empire, and that is, you know, a pretty big deal. So the reason this all starts to get a little spicy is the Persians already rule over a part of Greece, a place called Ionia. Now, the other Greek city-states are not so keen on how things are being run. So the Eritreans and the Athenians send some help to Ionia, and they start what's called the Ionian Revolt. Obviously, it's a revolt in Ionia. 
pretty self-explanatory. The Persians are pretty predictably not so pleased about these actions. And Darius is like, Ooh, you Greek motherfuckers, I'm gonna get you for this. You Athenians will pay. And he tells one of his, like, good homies, a part of his posse, like, Hey, man, I just want you to remind me every day before dinner that I have to eventually go get the Athenians, okay? Which is a pretty unhealthy way to cope with a problem. I imagine by like day five when the guy's like, hey, just just a reminder, we don't like the Athenians. Darius is like, yeah, man, I ah, fuck. I remember, man, like it's been five days in a row. I'll get there. OK, just just give me a little bit of time. Jeez. It's 491 BCE in the story right now. Darius sends some envoys over to Greece and they're like, hey, you guys can submit, just give me some earth and water and everything will be cool, right? You can still govern yourself the way you want, but I'm the ruler. And the Greeks are like, okay, hear us out. We have a better idea. How about you go and fuck yourself? And then they do the one thing that you are like super not supposed to do. They kill the envoy. Now, if you know nothing else about ancient history, I can tell you this. You do not kill the messenger. It's pretty much always a one-way path to war. The whole point of the envoy is to stop war before it happens by using the intimidation of an invasion. Unfortunately for the Persians, the Greeks are down to party. And by party, I mean defend themselves and go into all-out war. So now Darius is properly pissed off, and he decides he's going to put his military where his mouth is. He's going to start the invasion of mainland Greece. But he doesn't really want to do it himself, so he sends his general Datus and also his young nephew. They reportedly have a fighting strength of 90,000 men. Meanwhile, the Greeks are commanded by a dude named Miltiades, and he commands a force of somewhere between 10 and 20,000 men. I think we could probably just say 15 and call it good. You better get used to the fact that the Greeks are outnumbered because that's going to be a theme through pretty much all of these battles. When the Persians finally arrive at Marathon, they have a game plan to just shoot a shit ton of arrows at the Greeks from a far distance away. Now, there are two problems with this plan. One, the arrows that the Persians use are pretty light. Two, the Greeks happen to wear bronze armor, so the arrows aren't very effective. But I do imagine that it's probably pretty impressive to see that many arrows flying through the air at once. Kind of wish I could see it, but that would mean that I'm probably getting shot at, and that's not very chill. So now that plan A didn't pan out, the Persians have to go and do some close quarter fighting against the Greeks. And that's not going to go so well for them either because the Greeks fight with a long spear, a heavy sword, and a large shield. So the Persians kind of just get their asses kicked. The Greeks fight in a formation known as the Phalanx. I think the best way to describe it is kind of like a murder turtle. <laughs> Stupid. Each guy carries a shield in his left hand and a spear in his right. The shield covers the left side of his body, and then the dude next to him on the right side 
it covers his right side of his body. So when they're all standing together, boom, turtle shell. Add those spears, murder turtle. The advantage of having heavier weaponry plus the discipline of the phalanx, or the murder turtle as I like to call it, the Greeks just smashed the Persians. According to traditions, the Greeks killed 6,400 Persians and only lost 192 soldiers themselves. A victory like this against the odds definitely gets the Greek people jazzed. The battle at Marathon very quickly becomes the stuff of legend. Meanwhile, the Persians are like, oh shit, that did not go like I thought it was gonna go. Let's get the fuck out of here. They bail back to Asia, and they're like, okay, how are we gonna do this differently next time? What if we bring, like, a whole bunch more people? It takes 10 years before the Persians are ready to make that plan a reality. Unfortunately, during that time, Darius dies. So now, his little boy, Xerxes, is the ruler, and he is gonna be the guy to carry the torch. The first battle that he has with the Greeks happens at a place called Thermopylae. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. If you haven't seen the movie 300, or, to be fair, read the graphic novel, which came first, maybe you don't know all the players. Obviously, we've already talked about Xerxes, but now I'm going to introduce a dude named Leonidas. Leonidas is one of the two Spartan kings. Remember, they always have two kings. If you don't remember that, go back and listen to the last episode. According to Herodotus, Leonidas is the super, super, super far distant relative of the Greek divine hero Heracles, who of course is the son of Zeus. Something that I find particularly interesting about Leonidas is he was never really thinking he would be the king, because he's the third brother. But through some sort of fortuitous events, his brothers died. That means that the kingship was given to him. Most people wouldn't do very well having that type of responsibility unexpectedly thrust upon them. But Leonidas, it turns out that being a leader suited him pretty well. Coincidentally, I'm also the third brother in my family, and in a completely unbiased opinion, I handle responsibility pretty, pretty good. So, I guess if you have a kingship that you're trying to get rid of, well, I'm ready to rule you. The Persians remember their last defeat well, and this time, Xerxes comes with a massive fighting force. The Greeks are like, oh shit, what are we going to do? We got to figure out where we're going to try to stop these guys. So they have a little meeting, and they decide that they're going to try to hold them at a place called Thermopylae. The reason they choose this place is because it has a specifically narrow pass. Apparently, the narrowest part of this pass is only 50 feet wide, which is obviously a major benefit when you're talking military strategy, because no matter how many people the Persians have, they have to be funneled into a narrow corridor to fight you, and then numbers don't really mean that much. I wonder if you remember one of the dudes from our last episode named Demeritus. He was one of the Spartan kings, but he got bullied out and he bailed to Asia to join the Persians. Well, now he's on the side of Xerxes telling him exactly how he thinks the battle will go down. Supposedly, the Persians have 2,307,610 fighting men, 
against the Greeks, 300,000. Those numbers are almost absolutely false, but I think that it doesn't really matter that much knowing the exact numbers as long as, like I said before, you just understand that the Greeks are pretty much always going to be outnumbered by the Persians. The movie 300 can be a little bit misleading by that title. Although there are 300 Spartans, there are also some Tegeans, some Mantineans, some Arcadians, some Corinthians, some Thespians, you know. In total, there's probably actually something like 5,200 soldiers there. But the Spartans are the only ones who are like actually fully trained warriors, and that's what makes them so special. The reason there's only 300 Spartans is because right now in Sparta, there's like a party going on called Carnea. Now, they're not supposed to leave during this religious party because it's kind of like a big deal. But they know that things are pretty dire, so they send those 300 dudes in hopes that by showing that they're serious about it, the rest of the Greeks will be like, oh shit, we should probably send some people too. So the Spartans and the rest of those 5,000-some dudes are just chilling there, waiting at Thermopylae for Xerxes to make a move. Xerxes is waiting for them to make a move because he doesn't really think that they're serious about fighting. He sends one of his spies over to check on him, and when he sneaks up, the Spartans are like, yeah, man, we don't give a fuck that you're spying on us. Like, who cares? And they're brushing their hair and doing calisthenics, and the spy's like, what? What is going on here? And he runs back to Xerxes and tells him what's going on. And Xerxes is like, wait, they're doing what? Like, they're combing their hair? How does that have anything to do with getting ready for battle? And he turns to Demeritus and is like, Dude, didn't, didn't you say these guys are going to try to fight me? And Demeritus is like, okay, man, I, I understand that to you this seems strange, but like to them, this is how they get ready for battle. These guys super intend to fight you. And if I'm wrong about this, well, you can treat me like a liar. Now, what he's really saying there is, if I'm wrong about this, you can fucking kill me, dude. Xerxes doesn't really buy it, and he just kind of thinks they're fucking with him, so he sits there and just waits for four days, not making any moves, just seeing what they're gonna do, trying to see if they're bluffing, you know? And after four days of nothing, on the fifth day, he's like, okay, fuck this, we're gonna send some dudes in. But he doesn't really want to send in actual Persian warriors right now, so he sends in some of the Medes. The Medes go in there and they get crushed because the Spartans are just better warriors. Xerxes is unimpressed by the work of the Medes, so he's like, okay, time to pull out the bigger guns, and he sends in a group of fighters known as the Immortals. Now, obviously, they are not immortal, but they're called that because there's a pretty large fighting group of them, and if one of them dies, they're instantly replaced by another one, so... The group of men never falter in their size, you know what I mean? Well, the Spartans are going to put that to the test, because they also beat the shit out of the Immortals. According to Herodotus, during this fight, Xerxes jumped out of his seat three times, but I doubt that, because I don't think that dude gave much of a shit about any of his dudes. It just doesn't seem very likely to me. It's probably just Herodotus spicing things up a little bit, because although he's known as the father of history to some, some other people call him the father of lies, because it's quite possible that he embellished a few things, you know, maybe he was performing this book? I don't know. 
But anyway, the second day of fighting doesn't go much better for the old Persians. But then, on day three, according to the Greeks at least, this dude named Epialtes comes in, and I like to imagine he kind of lurks from the darkness and tells Xerxes, Xerxes, there's a secret path. And then Xerxes is like, really? Huh, that will make things a bit easier. I guess I'll send some dudes up that path. And he does. And when they're running up that path, they run into a group of dudes called the Phocians. But they're not very concerned with them. They're trying to get down to the other side where Leonidas is. So while they're going there, they get a little baby skirmish. And the Phocians run down and tell Leonidas. And he's like, oh, fuck, we've been betrayed. And now he's thinking on his feet. Okay, what should we do? We're all going to super die here. Uh, everybody else leave, except for the Lacedaemonians and you, Thebans, because you are our slaves, and fuck you guys, you're sticking it out with us. So he sends all of the other Greeks off to go warn the rest of Greece, you know? And he's like, we are going to sacrifice ourselves, and we're going to buy the rest of Greece time. Because, like I said, he's a pretty badass leader, and, you know... He's just standing up to be a sweet hero. He probably had an idea that this was going to go this way, and he's like, oh, people are going to love this. People are going to celebrate me forever. I'll be worshipped as a hero. And clearly he's not wrong because, you know, here I am talking about it many, many years later. So, worth it. So on the third day, the Persians overthrow the Greeks, and Leonidas falls dead. There's some battles for his body, and the Greeks are trying to get it, but the Persians keep coming back at him and pushing him back. Eventually, the Greeks look up and see that creepy dude just, once again, probably coming from the shadows, Epialtes, and they're like, Oh, fuck, that dude? God, he is such a dick. They all know and understand that there is no way out for them. So they run back to the pass and they're like, okay, motherfuckers. And they're cracking their knuckles and they're like, come and get it. And they fight with their bare hands and their teeth and their nails because all of their weapons are busted up from three days of battle. But eventually they get overtaken and the Spartans die to the man. This is a pretty historic moment for the Greeks. It's pretty much their Alamo, or more likely that our Alamo is their Thermopylae, but it goes down in history. The Persians, however, didn't really care at all. They don't even mention it in any of their histories about any of the battles. But it's interesting to think how one party thought it was a big deal while the other one didn't. It's like when two people are dating, or quote-unquote dating, and one of them gets really into it, and the other one's like, oh, I thought we were just having some fun, and then the other one is just heartbroken. That's kind of like this, except, you know, instead of just some emotions, there's like a ton of dead people. Speaking of those dead people... Xerxes is walking around on the battlefield after everything kind of calmed down, and he turns to Demeritus and is like, well, holy shit, you were right. Now what? What should we do next, you know? And Demeritus is like, okay, I'm glad all that went well. Next, I think that you should go take this island off the coast of Greece, and it will scare the rest of the Greeks, and it also gives you a good, you know, naval strategy base to kind of work from. But then Xerxes' brother kicks in the door. They're outside, so there's not actually a door. But he comes up and he's like, yo, what the fuck? We can't trust this dude. Remember, he used to be a Spartan. Like, we cannot trust him as far as we can throw him. 
And he's a normal-sized man, so I don't think you could throw him very far. Or I assume he's a normal-sized man. But Xerxes is like, listen, dude, brother, brother, calm down. Demeritus is chill. I'm going to listen to you, and we're going to do your plan instead of his. But I do want you to remember that this dude just kind of helped us win this fight, and, you know, he was telling us the truth the whole time. So Demeritus is one of our homies now, okay? While they're just cruising around the battlefield, they come across the body of Leonidas. Now, like I said before, this is supposedly not that big of a deal to the Persians, this whole battle, but Xerxes clearly doesn't like Leonidas because he cuts off his head, which, you know, by some standards is not that big of a deal. But the Persians usually honor valiant men and don't kind of desecrate the body. So I guess... It was a big enough deal to him that maybe they didn't need to write it in the histories, but he was for sure pissed off. After the Persians win at Thermopylae, they start to make their way into mainland Greece. And they're fucking shit up, and all these little city-states are starting to turn over to them and give up. And they get to Athens, and they sack it, which is a really big deal. If you remember... This is the place that Darius was like, hey, remind me how much I hate them every day. So getting to Athens and taking it was kind of their main objective, I guess you could say. But now that they're there, they're going to be like, well, let's subjugate everybody, huh? Leonidas has a brother named Cleombrotus or Cleombrotus or Cleombrotus. It's not very easy to say, but it does have the word bro in it, so it's kind of easy to remember. Anyway... He's going to start building a defensive wall at Corinth, but then winter comes and it halts the land campaign. So the next vital battle is going to happen at sea, at a place called Salamis. It's still 480 BCE when this one starts. The Persians have 500 ships versus the Greeks, 300. Both of the armies are using a ship called the Trireme. It's a fast and maneuverable warship that happens to have a large bronze ram on the front of it. Although they both have the same ships, the Greeks have one thing that the Persians certainly do not. They have a dude named Themistocles, and to say he's a badass with a trireme is for sure an understatement. This dude has 20 years experience on these motherfuckers. He comes up with the plan to kind of mimic what they do at Thermopylae. He gets the Persian fleet to kind of follow him into some of the narrow straits at Salamis, and then they have nowhere to retreat to, and they turn around with these sharp, pointy boats and just smash them, you know? They harass them and crush them in half. The rest of the fleet bails. They're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Let's get out of here while the getting's good. So Themistocles wins that battle. Xerxes is like, I'm going back to Persia because I want to hang out at my palace. I accomplished what I wanted to do here. I took Athens. I'm going to leave General Mardonius in charge, which is a really smart move. Because if Mardonius wins, Xerxes gets to say, well, you see, I picked a really good guy and I knew he could do it. The Persians are so strong. They didn't even need me because I have such good generals in my army, you know? Now, if he loses, Xerxes gets to go, well, when I was there, we were winning, you know, like Mardonius is a failure, not me. It's his fault. Fuck that dude. 
But I do imagine that he had a lot of faith in Mardonius. I I doubt that he thought that he was going to lose because the Persian land army is still intact and they've already taken a pretty good portion of Greece at this time. So it seemed like momentum was going in the direction of the Persians, but not for much longer. The Greeks are not fucking around anymore. They have assembled the largest hoplite army that anyone has ever seen from more than 30 different city-states. The Battle of Plataea is about to take place, and this one is a doozy. It's like Game 7 of the NHL playoffs. Winner takes all. I assume that's copyright infringement, so I'm just going to stop that now. Supposedly, this battle has 110,000 Greeks versus 300,000 Persians. Once again, like I said, it's, you know, always outnumbered in favor of the Persians. The Persians and the Greeks are both making sacrifices to the gods, trying to figure out what kind of favor they'll have in this battle. Now, coincidentally, both of them are getting kind of the same results. It's saying... Hey, as long as you guys stay on the defensive, you're going to be fine. But the first person to go on offense in this battle is going to lose. So now both sides are kind of just hanging around, waiting for better omens. You know, they sacrifice daily and they're just waiting for something to change. While this is happening, the Greeks have more and more soldiers and provisions coming on the daily, which I don't think I need to explain is obviously very beneficial for them. So... Right now, the longer they wait, the better chances they have to win. After eight days of waiting, Mardonius is told by someone to go send some dudes to the Cytherion Pass, and he does. And when they get there, they find, you know, extra provisions and Greek soldiers coming to help the rest of the Greeks. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, bitch, not on my watch. So they get in a fight, they kill all the Greeks, and they steal all the provisions and bring it back to Mardonius. So this is, you know, trying to weaken... Uh, the defenses of the Greeks, but it's a little too little, too late. (laughs) A little too little. That's very fun. After this little skirmish, both sides just kind of go back to waiting. Two more days pass before anything happens. The Persians are starting to taunt the Greeks, trying to get them to break their side, you know, like, send the bad luck to them, we'll force them, we'll just tease them until they have to fight us. And apparently it gets pretty close, like the Greeks are starting to get pretty pissed off about this. But they don't crack. On the 11th day of waiting, the Persians are like, okay, let's have a little meeting. We'll get a little consul together. And a dude named Artabazus is like, I think I have an idea, guys. What if we go fight them, you know, but we don't do it. We send some of our Greek mercenaries to do it for us. So, you know, it's the same old story. Greeks fighting Greeks. And we kind of get to circumvent the oracle. Now, a different Mardonius, not the Mardonius we've already been talking about, comes in and is like, fuck that, dude. Just let the Persians go. We're stronger and we're better. Fuck those oracles. They don't know what they're talking about, you know. They always send us these enigmatic clues and we don't even really know what it means. Like, let's just go in there and do the damn thing, all right? So now back to the main Mardonius. He's listening to everyone and he's like, okay, uh, what should we do here? Um, does anybody know of any oracles that say that, you know, if we go in there, we just die? Like, is that a thing? And it's just crickets. Nobody responds. And he's like, okay, interesting, because I've actually heard of one before. And it said something along the lines of, if we attack the oracle at Delphi, we die. 
But what if we just don't do that, you know? We'll just, everybody avoid the oracle at Delphi. Let's just go in there and kick some ass like us Persians do. And that's that, you know, don't, nobody fuck up. Obviously, nobody in the Persian camp has ever read Harry Potter because they don't understand that the prophecy that the oracle made isn't even about them. So they can't go get it in the Department of Mysteries. That last part is just, that's not fully accurate. It's just from Harry Potter. It doesn't really pertain to the Persians, but whatever. Now, later that same night, a dude named Alexander from Macedonia rides to the Greeks. Not to be confused with Alexander the Great, who is from Macedonia, but this is where he gets his namesake from. Now, Alexander rides into the Greek camp and says, Hey guys, <laughs> I'm doing this at a real personal risk. I just want to let you guys know that I like, I super love Greece, and that's why I'm telling you guys this top secret information. Mardonius hasn't gotten any good signs, but now he doesn't really care, and he wants to attack you guys tomorrow anyway. But... If for some reason he doesn't attack, just chill out because, you know, the Persian camp is almost out of food. And he's like, if if you guys, if this all goes the way that I said it's going to, just remember me. Remember that I, I was I was looking out for Greece and and don't be like bummed out on me because I'm currently on the side of the Persians, okay? And then he rides back. Meanwhile, the Spartans and the Athenians trade places on the battlefield to better suit the Persian counterparts. The Persians see this and are like, well, fuck that, we're going to switch too. So they do. And now they're engaged in a little dance with one another, going back and forth and back and forth. At this point, Mardonius and his army start to taunt the Spartans, saying things like, oh, we thought you guys were so brave, but you won't even fight us hand to hand. If you are brave, why don't, instead of all of our armies fighting, you just pick the Spartans and we'll pick like a group of the, the Persians here and we'll just have it in like a mono e mono type situation, except not mono e mono because it would be, you know, a whole army versus a whole army, but whatever. The Spartans are like, fuck you, dude, like, Get bent. And Mardonius is like, well, these guys are cowards. That's a good sign for us. At this point, the Persians are starting to feel pretty confident about themselves, and they decide to destroy the water source of the Greeks, which is, you know, a pretty good tactic. The Greeks are like, okay, if Persia doesn't attack us like now, let's just bail and go get some provisions, and then, you know, we'll just go hang out at Plataea. The Persians do not attack, so the Greeks in unison look at one another and are like, Bail? Question mark? And then the other one, I imagine, was like, Yeah, Bail. And they just, you know, casually retreat to Plataea. The Greeks cleverly do this at night by lighting a bunch of fires and then bailing at night so no one notices they're gone. In the morning, the Persians wake up and are like, Oh, Fuck, what happened? How did a whole army get away from us without us noticing? So they're like, we gotta go get these dudes! And they, you know, start going really fast. Chaboy Mardonius is like, <laughs> fucking Greeks, bunch of cowards. Now what the Persians don't know about the Greeks fleeing is that there was a disagreement about leaving in the first place. And guess what? The Spartans, being as hard-headed as possible, at first were like, no, fuck that, we're not leaving. But then the rest of the Greeks leave and they're like, oh, okay, I, I guess we should leave too. But they take a different route. So the rest of the Greeks think that they've been deserted by the Spartans. And the Spartans are like, all right, we're going to find those guys and prove to them that we are also loyal to Greece. 
During the chase, the Persians end up finding the Spartans and the Tegeans, but they haven't gotten good omens yet, so when the Persians start to attack them, they're like, oh, fuck, we can't fight back yet. So they're on the field, on the battlefield, just like doing sacrifices and stuff like that, and the Tegeans are like, fuck this, I'm not waiting anymore, and they start to run, and wouldn't you know it, right at that moment... The Spartans get good omens that if they go into war, they'll win. So the Spartans go charging after the Tegeans, being like, We got your back, brothers! And I imagine there was probably at least one really solid brother handshake, you know? And they get there and they just start beating the fuck out of the Persians because guess what? They're less armored and the Spartans are just pissed off. So the Spartans beat the fuck out of them and while doing so... They kill Mardonius. Now, when they do this, in their mind, they're like, we are avenging Leonidas because, you know, the 300 were taken down and, and you guys are dickheads for doing that, but they were heroes to us, so now we have revenge. The all-but-defeated Persians start to flee. But historically speaking, in ancient battlefields, when you start to rout, that is when you are most decimated. So the Greeks are following them and just cutting these fools down one at a time. The Persians get to a wall and are climbing up it, but the Greeks just don't stop and they scale the wall and they just slaughter them and put an end to the forward progress of the Persians. According to the Greeks, this was the wooden wall that the oracle previously spoke of that would stop the Persians. When they got to this one and the Greeks chased them down and beat the fuck out of them, that was it. Now, the Greeks even say that Mardonius himself was the bravest person of the Persian army to fight in the battle. And the rest of the Greeks agreed that the Spartans were the strongest and most brave for all of Greece. And this is nice because it kind of, you know, gives them a little bit of credit back after everyone was starting to think that maybe they weren't as tough as they thought they were. So it turns out, you know, they were. So they can still go, this is Sparta! Or repeating history! They didn't say that. I said that. You know, that's a callback to the very beginning of this episode. Now, this is pretty much it. This is the culmination of this whole season, really. This is, you know, after the Midian Empire gets taken down and the beginning of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, and then the Persians get a little bit greedy, and they start trying to enter mainland Greece, and the Greeks are like, uh-uh, dog, it's not happening here. Not on our turf. And they stopped it. And after this battle... The Persians return home. They go back. It's not the end of the Persian Empire, but it is the end of the Persians trying to fuck with the Greeks. And of course, like I said earlier, our boy Xerxes was still taking credit that he accomplished what he meant to, because in his defense, he was like, I'm just going there to take Athens. I, I told you I was going to, and by golly, I sure did. And he had his safeguard in Mardonius, that if Mardonius lost, he got to say, well, I didn't lose. That was, that was Mardonius. So I guess he got what he wanted, according to Persian history, at least. So after this battle, the Greeks saved themselves from Persian rule and ushered in a wealthy era for themselves. Whew. 
We fucking did it, guys. I hope you guys were able to pay attention that whole time. For those of you paying really close attention, you might have noticed that at some points in this episode, my voice kind of changed, and that's because this episode kind of took me a long time to record because there was just so much information. I actually recorded different episodes in the middle of this one because it was so heavy. Uh, I hope you guys were able to stay on point through the whole thing, though, and that, you know, hopefully no one got too lost. If you have any questions about this, please feel free to message me on Instagram at Repeating History Podcast. Um, or you can send an email at Repeating History Podcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, if you guys don't want to be so lazy, you could just, you know, Google it yourselves. Find out a little bit about this stuff. Like, I'm just scratching the tip of the iceberg with all this stuff. It would be really cool if if I knew that I motivated any of you guys to check it out even further. That would make me feel pretty good. Now, this was kind of the end of an era for this season. Next episode is actually going to be um, a completely separate story. One that I just, I love so much. It makes me so happy. But it's almost undoubtedly false. Uh, The next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about Herodotus himself and why some people call him the father of lies. And in that episode, I'm going to tell you my favorite story that I just think is quite literally unbelievable. But it's awesome. Um, After that, I have one last special episode for you guys, and it's going to have a guest, my friend Justin Hartman, uh, a fellow tattooer who is not really a uh, history buff, is going to come join me, and we're just going to kind of recap and talk about some of the episodes and how how fun we thought the the season was. So I hope you guys stick around for that. Um, Two more episodes after this. Thank you guys so much for listening. It means a whole lot to me. If you guys haven't given it a rating or review or anything yet, please do that. It's very, very helpful. And uh, if nothing else, you know, tell your mom or your dad or your brother or, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend or your grandparents. They might even remember some of this stuff because, you know, they're super old. <laughs> Get it? It's, it's a joke about age. Anyway. Thank you guys so much. My name is Jonathan Penchoff, and you have been listening to Repeating History. Episode was written and produced by me, Jonathan Penchoff, and theme music was composed by Dave Regan. Thank you guys so much for checking out the podcast, and I will see you next episode in two weeks.